1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? You're just wasting your time. The wolf beat you, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. You wouldn't want to run away with a murderer, would you? Oh, Larry, you're not. You know you're not. I killed Bela. I killed Richardson. If I stay here any longer, you can't tell who'll be next. and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and it may not be while we're recording, but as you're listening, it's October, so we're going for some horror movies. And today I have a stellar cast with me to do 1941's The Wolfman. So I'm going to go around the horn for, uh, in uh, the way that you are in my uh, Skype window. So next to me is J. David Weeder. Hello. Hello. Next to him is Jason Giaconetti. Hey, how's it going? It's going good. 
clockwise around my partner, Sean Whalen. Always glad to be here. Always glad to have you. And last but far from least, Mr. Tim Elliott. Thank you, Paul. It's, a, it's an honor to be on. It's always good to have you. And just uh, for the record, Luke, Jack, and Eddie was supposed to be with us today, but at the last minute had something come up. Uh, so I did offer to him if he wanted to record a quick little soundbite for me to edit into this. Uh, and by the time the episode's over, you'll know whether or not he ever did. Uh, <laughs> but for now, we're looking at the Wolfman. And I know I first saw this on Channel 9 in New York on Saturday nights at 11 o'clock, they were showing, you know, horror movies on a regular basis. And I'm pretty confident, if my memory is correct, this was at the point when I was just old enough to be home on a Saturday night by myself, when my parents were out with people and my siblings were all out and I was home and I was sitting there and, you know, it, it, it's kind of a weird thing because it's like I was too frightened to go to bed but I put on a horror movie. So I don't really know that that's the best way to handle it. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that's how I watched this. I found it engaging at the time. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to bury the lead. I love this movie. I think this is a great telling of this uh, particular uh, story. And I think it's incredibly well put together at a at a 70 minutes long Uh with, with some real depth to it, some quality acting, some quality direction, and some quality cinematography. So that's my thumbnail sketch on it. So why don't we go around the horn? Dave, you are next. What do I think of it, or how was I first introduced to it? How were you first introduced, and what's your quick take? Um, introduced? As far as the, uh, the Wolfman concept, it was the Crestwood House books, the orange books you'd find in public libraries. Uh, but as far as seeing it, it was 1986? And for some reason, it was a big deal that our local station was playing it. So I was eight. I watched it with my babysitter and was just blown away by how what stuck with me is the atmosphere, the, the woods, which is an amazing set that I'm going to talk about later. But it's it's really an astounding. And the more you read into it about it, the more fascinating this movie is. So it's I love it as well. Jason, you're next. All right. So how old was I? I might have been three when I first saw this. Uh, it's one of the first ones I saw. The Wolfman is my favorite growing up. Well, Wolfman, Lon Chaney's version of the Wolfman was my favorite uh, of the Universal Monsters. Uh, i trying to think. So I also uh, read the Crestwood books as well. But that was after I already knew about every one of those monsters. I knew them inside and out. Um, I actually own a complete set of the orange and the purple Crestwood books uh, that my dad managed to cobble together over the course of a, two years, all from all over the world. Um, the Wolf, if I think, I think that's, I want to say this might be the first one. I think I saw this before I saw Dracula or Frankenstein or anything else. Um, and then this or Avon Costello, me, Frankenstein might have been the first one I saw. But I definitely saw The Wolfman very, very early. And it is literally kind of what helped form to me what a Wolfman should be. And uh, the, a lot of the, I'll talk about that when we get into the whole thing. A lot of the lore um, that uh, is from this movie, people believe to be the actual lore of wolf of, of werewolves in general, but it was all invented um, here. So, okay, Sean. So it's a strange answer because actually some of I was connecting with a lot of what Jason was saying. So I was born in '71. I live in Cleveland, Ohio. As far as these films, when I grew up, 
they were on like Big Chuck and Little John on Friday nights or Superhost and Saturday afternoon, which were, you know, those hosted programs where they would, you know, do a, you know, basically introduce a movie and do little skits in between the movie. I, it's dawned on me that I never saw the Wolfman completely. Like I've seen segments of it and recognize the iconic nature of it. When I was younger, I got to admit, really young, I'm going back in the 70s, black and white films I didn't appreciate like I do now. So I never, I don't know why I never went back and revisited this. When you were talking about doing this for the show, I was like, oh, I can finally watch that. <laughs> so the truth of the matter is, a lot of my comments this is going to be off of like a first full viewing. I'm not saying I haven't seen it before. I've seen it in chunks, but never like this, never from beginning to an end where I could really appreciate it as a film. And there's a lot to appreciate here, um, especially now watching so much of it with like a fresh lens, you know, with the comments about set pieces. But even the way the acting was taking the costumes, things that I like initially, I'm like, when he's up on his feet, you know, doing like tippy toes, I'm like at first, oh, that is so corny. And then I'm like, wait a minute, but that looks like a wolf when he's doing that. There's so many tiny details in this that for the age of this film that they were doing to add like atmosphere to this, that were initially, you know, I'm kind of like, I'm thinking one thing. And then by the end of the film, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is so brilliant. <laughs> so there's a lot to I'm, I'm anxious to discuss this film. But I got to admit, I'm relatively a newbie other than recognizing the iconic nature of Lon Chaney and, and the Wolfman. Okay, Tim, you're up. Uh, I don't have a memory of not when I first saw this. Probably it was when I was in elementary school. Uh, our local Dallas stations would have what we would call a three o'clock movie, and they would do theme weeks. So like Monday through Friday, they would do either Godzilla or Monsters or some kind of horror. So it's probably sometime I saw it in there and then I didn't really until I was adult I didn't really start appreciating it more until I got into when they started releasing them on DVD and the big collections of big um, uh, deluxe sets with all the extra features and stuff on them um, and I, I adore this movie I am a werewolf guy over my wife always we always have the uh, question is you know are you team werewolf or team vampire and I'm always like no I'm I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go werewolf. So she's she's not vampire. Doing any Twilight. I'm werewolf. No, no. <laughs> but, this is uh, a Twilight free zone. Yeah. But no, I I just I think this is a wonderful film, and I think Cheney's great in it, and it does have a lot of great production in it. And the, the Jason said the fact about that so much of what we think we know about werewolf comes from this movie, and it just came from the writers. It doesn't come from any kind of a an old book or any kind of old lore, they just made it up on the spot, and it's just been ingrained in the zeitgeist. Yeah, from what I understand, the entire concept of the werewolf came almost as a like it was almost like a mythological thing, where it was created to explain like a serial killer or something like that. Uh, you know that that. It wasn't just a regular man that did it, you know, and I guess we're probably talking in, you know, maybe the 1800s or the 1700s or somewhere around there. And and that they were explaining away like these some brutal murders by saying it was like a werewolf that did it. Uh, and that that's where the the legend grew. But I, I'm going to say 
and it's basically kind of echoing Jason's thoughts a little bit, is that most of my werewolf knowledge comes from Lon Chaney. Uh, and, and even when you talk about some of the more modern movies, uh, you know, a lot of them, they all owe, owe to this one. And I, as I was watching this for the purposes of uh, doing this review today, I have two thoughts that come to mind. One is I was watching it when my wife wasn't around because she's not much of a horror fan and I'm always concerned about not, you know, spooking her or whatever. And she came over while I was watching it and she asked what I was watching and I told her and she said, she said these she would watch because these aren't the graphic, gory horror movies that would really, you know, be just appalling to her. So there's that element of it that it, it's more of what it does with your mind than what it shows you. Uh, and I think that's kind of big. Uh, and the other aspect of it is I was just kind of surprised uh, at how much of American Wealth in London is mirroring this movie. Mm-hmm. I never really compared them in my mind that much. But wow, that that really now feels like a total remake of this movie, uh, you know, a little bit modernized, a little bit changed around. But it just I, I you know, I, I couldn't I didn't realize how much of the iconography they, they took in that movie. And maybe one day we'll review that one as well. But uh, I know Lon Chaney Jr. took great pride in the fact that he was the only one to portray the werewolf in those universal movies. Uh, whereas the Frankenstein monster got played by different people. Dracula got played by different people. And and it wasn't, you know, nobody was even, you know, well, you may say Bella Lugosi is Dracula. The, he only played the part twice in all the movies that, that Dracula was in. Uh, Lon Chaney Jr. was the werewolf, I think, in five different movies, if my memory is accurate. Well, just to. Uh, just to add something to that, Lon Chaney also played a Dracula, a werewolf, and Frankenstein's monster. That, yes, and the that mummy. is true. And, yeah, and the mummy. mummy. He's scars. Yeah. Well, he's yeah. in two of the movies he is. The, the Tom Tyler played him in the first sequel. Well, he says, that's what he says, that's why the Wolfman is his baby, because he kind of originated it, and he's the only one to play it, mm-hmm. as opposed to the other ones were hand-me-downs. He took, yeah. came after Karloff and uh, Lugosi and all the rest, but the Wolfman was his. That's why he took so much pride in it. Yeah. So the the, the other thing is too is that uh, uh, Cheney is not the only Universal werewolf. Um, he is the only Wolf Man though, because uh, Werewolf yes. of London is Henry Hull, and no one else besides Henry Hull ever played Correct. the Werewolf of London, which is a little different. Um, one thing though you mentioned here, and I just want to throw this in. Um, I was just actually reading today. Um, it's it, this, the book is called the Classic Classic Movie Monsters. Um, this is the third book, the Legendary Movie Monsters, book three. This is the one that I want to say one is Frankenstein, two is Dracula, and three is like the rest of them. And in the werewolf chapter, they were talking about um, the fact that, you know, the idea of a full moon is actually rarely um, equated in mythology and legend with werewolf transformation. Werewolves actually, which are found in folklore going back to ancient Greece, um, is talking about a person who is living, unlike a vampire, who can transform themselves into different animals. And the animal in which they transform themselves into is a wolf. If you live where there's wolves, there are crocodiles, there's jaguars, there's whatever, you name it, whatever it is. The idea of lycanthropy as a concept has existed in every single culture somewhere um, to to the extent of the idea that the lycanthropy is actually in this case, taking the place for people who had 
um, uh, like some kind of mental disease, um, which were which is looking at uh, lycanthropy as a disease. Lycanthropy is also, um, which my dad and I spoke about uh, on our episode when we covered um, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, that uh, werewolfism, or excuse me, during Ivan Kassel Frankenstein uh, this past summer, um, werewolfism is often looked at as um, uh, can be analogous to cancer uh, because you, the person did nothing, they didn't do anything wrong, they've been, you know, they're bit, this is now a curse upon them, um, you know, things like that it eventually leads to their demise, things like that. So you can see in many different cultures uh, where lycanthropy, even though it might not be a wolf every single time, um, the that concept of the person who is still living, not a vampire who can change into a mist or a bat or a wolf or whatever, um, that that is used a lot of times was to explain certain things away. And what happened was when you look at when you look back at those different places and cultures where that was prevalent, you started to see um, things that were overlapping in ideas, which is crazy because those places are nowhere near each other, but they had to find a way to explain it. And that's how they did. So I just wanted to throw that in. I know we were just kind of talking about that, but we, the, the, the imagery of a wolf is common in a lot of them, but obviously like in Africa, it's lions and jackals and leopards, et cetera, and stuff like that. But it does appear in many other places. And, uh, the uh, also the idea of a, a of Lon Chaney being the wolf man compared to just being a werewolf was also a different concept because the the the, the title of the wolf man was actually used I want to say four times previously before this movie for movies that actually had no wolves in it at all. Um, but what happened was the, the they wanted to make sure that they gave you um, a more humanoid person who had wolf like features. Much like Henry Hull did in in, in um, uh, Werewolf of London, because it wasn't just he turned into a wolf, because that was something that people associated more with vampires, uh, at least in um, e, you know European lore and stuff like that. So, yeah, Henry Sorry, Hull was more almost a Jekyll and Hyde is his yes. transformation, because it wasn't a full wolf; it was more this sinister looking. So the reason. Yeah, the reason that happened, sorry, the reason why that happened is Henry Hall, they started putting the makeup on, and he goes, I hate this, take this off of me. And they were like, what if we scaled it back? He's like, well, you better, because people will need to know who I am. I wish, I, and I don't mean to speak bad of Henry Hall, but that's like, it's literally, I've, I've seen that accounted in many, many different places, that it was, the makeup was supposed to be more, and he was like, no, no, they can't, they have to be able to tell it's me. So his makeup is minimal, to mm -hmm. say the least. Um, the Elvis werewolf, as they call it. Yeah. I, it is, it is a, um, an interesting look when you look at it and what sometimes is lost with that look, um, because you see so much of his face. If you think about it, it's much more, there's much more human to him, even in his character. Cause he's, it's the idea of the, 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 uh, the, the flower he's got to get from Tibet and the guy comes in and then like he winds up killing people. It's, and he's not even as a wolf. It's like, the movie is is very very different than we got as the Wolfman and what many people think when they think of a werewolf movie when people think of American Werewolf in London the Howling things like that there's very I don't want to say formulaic but there's things that have to be there and none of that's there in Werewolf of London uh, it's but the Wolfman introduces it and then brings it back in House of Dracula House of Frankenstein uh, you know, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman etc those same things are brought back over and over again so. Yeah. Like, so now, one Henry of the Hall things that changes 
uh, as this goes on. And I know we're here to just to do, talk about the one movie, but in the future movies, uh, because they kill off the Wolfman and then they bring him back, uh, they effectively make him undead. Uh, you know, really in Frankenstein meets the werewolf, they they have to bring him back to life and they do so by opening up his grave and removing the uh, whatever. Remo- Wolfsbane. The, the, yeah, the Wolfsbane. And then he comes back to life. So at that point, they're ta- almost tying it into the Dracula mythology there or the vampire yeah. mythos. Well, uh, but some of that but, also uh, has to do with the fact you, sorry, real quick. You, you, so in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, um, Talbot is looking for a way to kill himself because he know he he knows he can't die now. So that the whole idea was that, um, and this is again, however you might read this, and uh, uh, that he was never actually dead, but like kind of comatose, and then had to be awoken from there. That's why he wants uh, he wants um, the doctor to drain off his energy to kill him, that that's how he's going to do it. He'll use the idea of what Frankenstein was doing when he created the monster to really remove the life force from him entirely. So that is how he'll be free. There's actually, and, and I've read it. It's um, it was a screenplay and they turned it into a kind of a book. It says Dracula meets uh, the Wolfman. And it was literally supposed to be another sequel where Bela Lugosi was supposed to come back as Dracula and Lon Chaney is the Wolfman. And it turns into this whole thing where now, he and Dracula are fighting, and this is how he's going to escape this. But if he, but he, but Dracula can never be, you know, Dracula has to be killed X number of ways, but can be brought back and whatever. And it's all these different levels of how the the things can be looked at upon each other. You know, what I'm saying like like where things overlap, but yet they are still different. So the you can't kill him uh, aspect of it, or you can't die aspect of it, kind of conflicts with the fact that Bela the werewolf dies at the beginning of this movie uh and and is never brought back and has never even thought about being being brought back but you know inconsistencies aside uh they had to come up with a way to bring him back in the sequels and i think that's really what it comes down to you think when they originally did this film that i mean the idea was this is a done in one mm-hmm. yep. and i mean that's because one of the things I really enjoyed about this film, it's funny, is we were geeking out over lore in, in the past. One of the things I really liked about the presentation of this film, how it opens up with that text of lycanthropy, but yep. then moves into like an introduction of what werewolves are from just kind of some of the opening sequences that introduce that concept. It's There's a story where it's introducing characters. And through getting to know the characters, you know, through the gypsy interactions and things like that, we're gradually getting pieces of the lore distributed throughout the film as they're interacting with people we're growing to like. Because one of the things I thought about this that was great was casting. The casting of this film is absolutely brilliant. It's stacked. Yeah. Lon Chaney Jr., I mean, incredibly likable. And I mean, there's things he's human. So he's not a perfect guy. I mean, he's he's very interested in Gwen, finds out Gwen's, you know, like she's promised she's engaged. You know, Gwen could go for me, too. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. So, I mean, he's he's kind of should be backing off a little bit, but um, he's likable and he's suave and you get kind of what her attraction is to him. And, you know, you get to see his interaction with his father and we're seeing a three dimensional character being crafted here and Everyone is believable in their roles. There is nobody in this, at least, this is my opinion, that I would recast. 
um, which is rare in a film because usually there's films where, you know, there's somebody that I'm like, ah, it could have been this person. It could have been that. I didn't feel that with this. I felt like it was perfect casting. But I loved the lore piece of this being introduced as we were gradually getting expanded introductions to these characters, attachments to these characters. It was it was like another the layers of unfolding mysteries in this film is something that I really appreciated because there was the murder mysteries with the wolves and, you know, all those pieces that were going on through the people in the tower. We almost had, we, we know more than everybody else does, but then um, there's also the lore that we're gradually getting to know along the way, which I didn't know completely in this because of the fact that I said, I saw this before in pieces. So it was nice to see this the way it was intended and to really be taken through this whole journey but my gosh what a cast i agree with you totally there wasn't one person in this cast that i wasn't enamored with and i was trying to think well after lon cheney jr who's who's like the best one and i i couldn't even come up with it claude rains is excellent as his Mm -hmm. father ralph bellamy one of the duke brothers is there i mean you know (laughs) he can't do better than that bella lugosi is is great in his little role and and to me uh i think the perfect casting is maria uspinskaya who serves to not only be sympathetic and likable in her own way, but also allows them to do the exposition of explaining the lore without it feeling like they're pushing it on you. So it, it's it's all perfect. And, and uh, you know, I, I would be remiss to not mention, uh, what's it, Evelyn Anchors as, as Evelyn Gwen. Anchors. Yeah. You know, there's chemistry there. Uh, Which is and, funny because they hated each other. Well, she hated him. Yeah. They didn't <laughs> like each other. Well, because he was an alcoholic bastard, but that's besides the point. <laughs> Well, here's well, so, so, kind of this kind of piggybacks off what Jason was talking about, how lycanthropy was explaining things. The original intent for this script was not to see the wolf at all and to to be a psychological situation for Larry. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard that. That's a uh, Wheeler script or the. Uh, uh, Todd, it's, and I don't know how to pronounce it. Todd Sidemock. See, yeah, yeah, that was his intention. And and Universal's like, no, no, we're going to put the wolf in there. We're going to show it. But if you watch it as just the hysteria, it becomes another movie, not better or worse. But you've got like two movies running consecutively if you do just a little bit of mental gymnastics. So I always thought the brilliant part of having. Talbot as an estranged son coming back to England or Wales. They never make it quite clear where he's at. And that he's a stranger coming in because he's been so Americanized. But that allows us as the audience to come in and learn all these folklore with him. As he learns it, we learn it. So he's kind of our surrogate um, participant so that as he finds out about it, we can find out about it. It doesn't feel clunky. It doesn't feel like an exposition dump. And it becomes that he has to find out about it because he's now been cursed. Yeah. So that's where where Maria Uspenskaya comes in, you know, <laughs> where she's she's given. And they all they all know the little poem and they give it to you. And it, it, I'm a little surprised that that didn't feel heavy handed after a couple of times, but it didn't. It felt good. If like the repetition actually made it kind of sit better with me. Um, you know, the casting was great. I, I'm I'm really tempted to to almost not recognize how good the direction is in this because it's such a quick movie that it doesn't have like those Alfred Hitchcock type flourishes to it, but 
it's put together so well that in 70 minutes we get everything we need. There's nothing about this movie that makes you feel like, well, they didn't give me this, they didn't give me that. It, it, it is paced incredibly well, and I, I got to give credit to, to Wagner for that. Uh, and and the, the shots are all, you know, eerily effective. Um, you know, we, we, we really get some atmospheric things, and, and I know uh, a couple of you wanted to talk about the set pieces, and I think now's a good time to talk about that. No. Okay. Yeah, that was before we get that. I'm going to run this real quick. Let me throw this in there. So, Kurtzy Admack, when he had the original idea, like we just saying, like not showing the wolf. Then they had said, no, we need a monster. Universal said, we need a monster. He said, okay, who are we going to get? And I wish I was kidding. Bella Lugosi and Boris <laughs> for the two names they threw around, and there was no way they were going to be able to use Boris Koloff. He just was too old. There was no, like, he's older than Claude Rains. You can't believe that he's the son. Like, it wasn't going to work, right? And Bella, they felt that, like, it just was not the right fit. So after um, uh, um, Lon Chaney Sr. passed away, that's allowed Lon Chaney, well, he didn't he didn't take his father's name until a couple years in. He made a bunch, he couldn't get move roles. People thought he was good looking, but whatever. He, as soon as he became Lon Chaney Jr., became instantly, people wanted him in movies and stuff. The Universal, they looked at him and said, look, here's a good-looking guy. He's tall. He has all the leading man qualities. And what really broke it up like for him was in A Mice of Men, him playing Lenny, which he was renowned for. You can actually see bits and pieces of the Lenny character that was so people like lost their mind over how great it was in all of his different roles throughout the rest of his career. And what happens is they said, look, we got to like kind of make sure that we have they went through and kind of made sure the script that they were showing him on screen a lot. You don't realize it again. It's, it's only a 70 minute movie. He's on screen a lot of the movie, right? And now since you're now having him in the wolf makeup, they knew that the, you know, just, just from, just from the fact that, you know, Dracula and Frankenstein would be brought back every single year and replayed over and over again in the theaters. Right. They had this feeling like, look, we need the next Dracula. We need the next Frankenstein. We need the next whatever it is. And the makeups, which uh, is, is Jack Pierce, uh, was so groundbreaking at the time. And the transformations were and stuff like that. What happened was they said, like, look, we're going to have a good looking guy that people wouldn't mind looking at and seeing again, you know, on Cheney Jr. And then we get that makeup. They kind of knew the writing was on the wall and the Wolfman became literally one of their biggest big successes of all time for for universal by way of scale for year and money and stuff like you know inflation and all that stuff so but yeah but they originally had said like well who do you want to get how about bella lugosi or how about somebody <laughs> called and we mentioned this kind of we talked about dracula a little bit big idea but lugosi if you think about this um when he was doing his lines in dracula he is he memorized the words and the sounds not necessarily that he was speaking english he memorized it all, right? And giving him that very distinct way of speaking. You would never have believed that Bela Lugosi is the son of English, whatever, royalty, right? I mean, could be Claude Rains' son who went to America. Like, you're never going to buy that. You're never no. going to believe that. You know what I'm saying? But yet, Claude Rains, who was also considered for the role, I'm just throwing it out there, that would <laughs> have been weird. Who would have been his dad? You know, go get, like, literally, like, grandpa Moses kind of thing right um but like the the idea though is like you had to have it believable and you couldn't just have it be some guy and that's one of the reasons why again the part of bella as the 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 the, the gypsy 
you know, to lead him there. That's why it was perfect for Bela Lugosi, you know, little on the nose with the name, to fit him right in because it allowed people to say, oh, I know who that is. Oh, and it just allowed you to buy into it. You know, you didn't sit there and go, you know, nowadays we kind of, you see movies where they have actors you don't know who they are and you can kind of buy the movie more because you're not like, oh, that's The Rock or that's Kevin Hart or that's whoever, you know, like people wanted Bela Lugosi in that very small role, even with the mustache on, you could tell that's Dracula behind that. He's Dracula. Do you need to know Dracula? You know, kind of thing. Like, but that's what it is. So, anyway, well, they, sorry. They point out that that uh, Lugosi and um, Maria, I'm gonna butcher her name, Maria Oskinskaya. There was like six years difference between the two, and yes. she's playing his mother. Yeah, but she she looked old enough to be anybody's mother. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> She, she's like one of those people who, when like they're ten, you're like, "What are you forty? Like, what's yeah. wrong with?" You? I was like, yeah. yeah. She she looked forty when she was ten, and she looked forty yeah. when she was forty, and she looked forty yeah. when she was ninety. Yeah. Uh, Max Mancito looked old his entire life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I I always harken back to uh, you know my favorite TV show of all time was The Odd Couple, and uh, there was an episode where Jack Carter was on it, and he was like a comedian. He was playing a comedian and he's walking through their their uh, apartment and he's just like, you know, on the go, just constantly cracking jokes. And he reaches over to the table and grabs a doily and puts it over his head. And he says, quick impression, Madame Usinskaya. And it's like, how many people in 1975 even know, knew who he was talking about? But I, I, that's what I always think about. He, and, but anyway, uh, yeah, I thought she was great in this, honestly. I really, you know, she she might be my runner up after uh after Lon Chaney. Um, the Wolfman makeup is so iconic to me that this is the look I want. And pretty much the universal looks are the ones I want. Cause for the Frankenstein monster, I always want the, that look as well. Uh, but like when I see a more wolf like makeup, like in say American wolf in London or the howling or whatever, uh, I still long for this. This is the look I like. Because this is literally a wolf man. It's not a wolf that's just bigger and more monstrous. It's a man who becomes wolf-like. And and, and it, to me, it's just like the perfect look uh, and, and truly iconic. So, you know, that was a big thing for me. Although the transformation scenes in this, I don't believe have the weight of the later ones, even in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which we will talk about in another episode. Uh the transformation scenes that they show are superior to what we get in this. You know, I was a little disappointed. I never realized, you know, we got one scene where all we see is his feet changing. Uh, you know, that was, that's, I guess, a little disappointing in hindsight because it's later on, you saw how well they did. Right. But it was the first Sorry? time they ever did it. It was the first time they ever did it. And what happened was, um, well, I shouldn't say that. Uh, Henry Hull's transformation was so subtle um, his was all done with makeup the way they would do Jekyll and Hyde um, transformations like either on stage or in like uh, uh, the Barrymore version and stuff like where it's just light changing. Um, the transformation here was groundbreaking in that they showed you with a lockdown camera and a lockdown person what happens. The reason why they went to the foot transformation in the other one was because it was so time consuming to shoot and it was so hard to get the shots that doing the, the foot, they want to do something different. What happened was this led to, um, oh, I forgot the year, uh, Frederick Marx's, he won the Academy Award for Jekyll and Hyde. Um, 
year. I mean, I think it was, I think it was 44. I, I'm trying to remember. Um, but when that transformation happens, a lot of that's done with light and shadow where they couldn't get away with that. Or sorry, 31. Um, Jekyll and uh, Frederick Mark won the Academy Award for that. That was all done with light and shadow, right? And they couldn't get away with that here because he has to ha- grow hair. You know what I'm saying? Whereas Hyde, even though he, his face changes, Frederick Mark's face changes, um, he had to, you know, it, it was not as drastic. And then you would see it later with Spencer Tracy, and you saw it earlier with Barrymore. It's a lot of it done with the different kind of paints and lights applied. You apply red paint and green paints to the face, and you turn on red and green lights, and all of a sudden on a black and white, things pop that aren't there. We, we, we Actually, you could see it if you ever saw um, uh, Jekyll and Hyde on Broadway. They did a lot of that stuff there, too, with the lighting and stuff within the theater. So One of the things I really liked about the transportation transformation with the feet on this one, though, is how it was from a storytelling standpoint in this one. Because mm-hmm. one of the things they were doing here is you've got a guy that's in denial over what's happening to him. But denial is one of those things where we're also seeing glimpses of he's starting to feel that there's a problem. And we saw that gradual build when he got to that point. He starts taking off his shoes and this is happening. And that reveal was one where we were kind of seeing his facial expression without the changes yet to what was happening to him. And I thought that's where he as an actor was getting me because of the fact that in those and I'm with you, Paul, I like I I love when they they've done some really great transformations with him. And I think in the black and white, it just shows up as menacing and cool the way that they do it. But for this one, I really liked the focus on this is a guy going through like this isn't happening. This isn't a thing. We all know it at this point that like, OK, he's got a problem and we're all waiting for that problem to manifest itself. But seeing his journey through that and seeing his reaction to when he pulls his socks off, it's, I'm, I don't know, I'm going to have trouble pulling my socks off the same way moving <laughs> forward. I see a little extra hair. I'm going to be a little worried after all that. But I thought it was, I thought that was the part that worked was seeing, just seeing that kind of manifestation of his denial. Um, but boy, is that makeup, you're right. When we see him in the full makeup, it's really good for that era. Really, mm-hmm. really good. Yeah. And it's all hand, it's all hand laid. That's mm-hmm. the thing is, is there, there's no mask. It's all hand laid. Mm-hmm. Um, each hair, which is why the, which is why, again later on you would see the same thing with Frankenstein's monster. The difference between uh, Carlos and, and Frankenstein and, and the bride, and then eventually later on with Lon Chaney playing him and stuff, things became headpieces and they got him on. And then when you know when, when Glenn Strange played Frankenstein, which is what most people think of because that's what Don Post mask is made off of, it becomes pieces and parts put on instead of individually being built with cotton and you know the glue and the different things and that's what happens to the wolfmans as well uh werewolves in general when they became much more part of the lexicon of what you know horror movies had in them they had to throw a mask on guys they had to like well let's we got to get this faster you couldn't take six hours to put on each hair you know so well pierce was reluctant to use latex yeah. He was kind of stuck. He was married to his ways. That's why when was it Bud Westmore that replaced him mm-hmm. when they mm-hmm. basically yeah. fired him? He started using a lot of pre-made uh, applications. Yeah. Well, I, I, again, I prefer the combination of man and wolf rather than going too far into the wolf. I'm glad they didn't give him the big snout. I'm glad they didn't, you know, 
bulk up his his chest area and, and you know bring him too much lower to the ground. Uh, a lot of the werewolf persona to me is the combination of the makeup and the physical acting. Uh, you know when 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 you you feel that he can't physically control his urges anymore and and there's there's i guess you know worthwhile to get into the subtext a little bit you know jason i think you mentioned earlier about you know it's like a man with cancer that he can't help it uh there is an element of that that you know it's you know his his it is released and and no you know there's it's uncontrollable at that point and he's not really to blame for what happens and yet he at least for this movie, uh, pays the ultimate price with his life because of it, yep. and that's what puts him at peace at the end. He's, you know, the, the you know the, the way they say it is he's happy to be yeah. released at that point, uh, and and you know the, I I think there's a lot of meat there to chew on again in a 70 minute movie. Um, the, you know, there's there's a lot that goes on and a lot to think about about what's happening to him, and then you top that off with he was estranged from his father and that relationship's coming back, and then ultimately his father has to be the one who puts him down, uh, even though they've kind of recovered and rekindled their relationship, uh, the whole relationship with Gwen and how, you know, he 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 was de- definitely pre werewolf a little id oriented with the way he wouldn't take no for an answer, and yet. She does manage to fall in love with him. By the end of it, she's in love with him. Uh, so, that, you know, again, there's just a lot going on here. And a lot of it is a combination of the way the story is told, but also just the acting that makes it believable. And I think, you know, again, really just well done by the actors and the director to put it all together, have have the pacing just right and have the, the, the chemistry between the characters just right. The estranged relationship with his dad, and I thought that was something where Claude Rains just played a brilliant role in that piece. Because as the movie goes on, you get this feeling that he loves his son. I'm not going to say he doesn't, but he also loves the family name. He loves the family history. He loves, you know, all of the tropes that go along with it. And and there's that pressure of we've got to maintain a legacy here that is getting in the way, I think, of him as a father dealing with his son, not only the fact that his son has been estranged and is not, you know, just just coming back home and doesn't really is kind of like sort of a fish out of water. And then all these oddities are happening. But how to support him because of that, because he's got the pressure of, listen, we can't have a scandal like this. We, you know, we are the Talbots and this is, you know, who we are and you are the next in line. You are the successor you need to do because he likely felt that same pressure when he was that age. So he's just doing what he knew. And he played a great role with that because you've got to believe the duality of the fact that he's got that historical pressure, but somewhere in there, he actually cares about his son. And it's, it's there. It's, we can all see it that it's like deeply hidden and we can probably give him some coaching, but, but uh, that's, it's an important duality of it. And I thought that casting and portrayal was brilliant in this. Well, there's don't a lot forget that's that they unsaid lost. with oh, sorry. A lot, a lot that's unsaid with that mm-hmm. in the fact that his older son was Correct. lost. And obviously, based on the portrayal, because it's never said, 
but obviously Claude Rains thought that was the heir apparent. And now that he's gone, there's a vacuum that was created and he needs Larry to fill that. And he isn't sure if Larry can because they've had their falling out. But eventually he starts to develop some sort of confidence in a relationship with him. Again, a lot of stuff that's there to be seen if you're looking for it. Well, the, you could just, the script was also written to be a Greek tragedy. And all yeah. of this falls right in line with that. Just the, the way everything falls apart at the end. Not in a bad way. I mean that everything it, it ends in such a tragic way. Well, and... Cheney, if you think about it, the actor is mimicking the role he has in the movie because he's following in his father's footsteps. Mm-hmm. So he has the same pressure of, can I fill the shoes? Can I be, you know, can I come into this world where he didn't want me? He wanted me to be a, I think he was a plumbing contractor. A plumber, yeah. And so now he's gotten into the movies, you know, so I have to follow in this. That's why he was very reluctant to take his dad's name, but he did in order to get work. So I don't know if that helped with his portrayal in the film, uh, the fact that he's got just bags of empathy helps quite a bit that you really feel for this guy. You like him. You uh, he's not being played as like a, the big, loud, ugly American. He just played more as a stranger to this more reserved ca- uh, country he's gone into. And you feel so sorry for him by the end of the film that, again, none of it's his fault. And you're kind of feel sorry for him and you're happy that he kind of feels peace when he finally succumbs to his father. I I always feel like we have to touch on the score for every movie that we cover. Uh, I thought this felt to me and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I, 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 you guys may know better than me. It felt like typical universal monster music (laughs) and that sat well with me. I, I thought that was, you know, it was that's the the kind of movie, music I want in a in a black and white classic horror movie. Uh, but I don't know if there was anything groundbreaking about it. I don't know if anybody heard anything different. Wasn't this one of the earlier movies to have a score, an original score? Because Dracula used Swan Lake and so did Frankenstein. That's an interesting question. I don't know the answer to it, but at least as far as Universal, right. it's one of the well, earlier this, Universal monsters, I think, but. I know they recycle it quite a bit. It shows up in Creature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. you got to yeah. wonder how this movie came across. You know, it's taking place in Europe, and it's 1941. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you got you to gotta wonder how, how that sat with the audiences. Uh, I mean, it's England, so it's not with our enemies. England, even though they use the European backlot. <laughs> yeah, and even though we have Romani's running all over the place but it doesn't you know it was still in england uh but i i gotta wonder in 1941 how the audiences in america saw this well i mean it's a solid distraction yeah i mean but also this this did do well for universal i mean this was uh, so you gotta remember uh obviously movies were very very different back then and stuff like that and like you know how movies reviewed and stuff like that. It wasn't like, it wasn't like it is now, which where it's just disposable kind of stuff um, where like you would go to the movies. It was like a thing you did unless you were a kid going on a Saturday, you know, kind of thing to the theater kind of stuff. And that was later in the fifties more than anything else. But like this did well for universal in that, because I think because it was so captivating to people because it wasn't a way to escape. It was a way to do different things like that. Um, you know, 
it's numbers are hard to find like box offices and budgets and stuff like like all those things not everything that stuff was always written down and or people thought was really something they wanted to keep track of you know nowadays we talk about that stuff all the time you literally know how much money a movie makes per showing you know kind of thing and in theaters so um just real quick i'm gonna throw this out there you were talking about the music uh which uh has got three guys credited but the main guy is uh, frank skinner um who worked on a ton of movies he's got 736 credits to his name just under music department um for musical score and that goes like i'm here we just get back to the i'm i'm trying to get back to the 40s uh just in 1941 alone let's see so like all the like he gets credit on a lot of the the these are all like like i can't good lord i'm i'm still scrolling to get back to 1941 <laughs> that's how many movies we're getting through here let's see 19 come on 42 almost good god 41 just in 1941 let me see uh 20 movies 25 at least he might have 30 something movies he did he did music on so he had to be including buck privates including like you know um stuff like that so he must have been working as i don't want to say the staff musician but like you know what i'm saying right like the guy who's the, the studio guy you know and he the just worked on contract yeah you know what i'm saying right but yeah. there's a lot of westerns here Raw rawhide rain. Usually the word rawhide doesn't come up often, but in the, these <laughs> other movies, riders and rawhide are in a lot of these titles. Hold that ghost, you know what's happened. Costello from forty one. Like he gets, he did all, he worked on all these things. So he must have been Universal Studios guy, which is why they were able to reuse it all because they owned it. You know, so here's where the score was successful. It's mm-hmm. sometimes the use of score, too, because, Paul, you're right. It's the kind of like the classic universal music. So I've heard it over and over again, maybe in different variations and stuff. But seeing it in this film and it's it was the use of music with sets, costumes and camera work. They were there were times where they were like shooting on the feet and showing him like making his way through. Like, I'm thinking of the part where like the doggone traps were set for him. Now this is a guy who at this point is killing people. You know I mean? We're starting to see it like lean over into that piece. I'm so invested in him that I'm like, okay, it's not his fault. Um, I don't want him caught. <laughs> like, and even though I know he's going to be, you know the dramatic build, you know that one of those traps are gonna snare on him. It's still I'm rooting for him to like not step in one of those things for just a wide variety of reasons, because I want a resolution to this, even though I know where it's going, because I'd seen enough of it at this point that I knew where it was going to go, you know, in the past that I still as I'm watching it, I'm still rooting for the guy. And that's being mesmerized by a film when you're being taken out of what you know to be true or you know where it's going to go, even though you've seen like those scenes before. And the film is making me want something else, um, even in that moment. That's that's being transported. And music does that. And I thought the music in this did a great job of building up what was going on in me internally. That you could have taken it out and they still would have taken me there because of all the other pieces I mentioned. But that score just in its use at key points in time. And that's something for the early years that we're talking about right here. Wow. Like really impressive how they were using score at that time to build atmosphere in a film that i think that's one of the keys of this film is atmosphere this film is very atmospheric 
So and some of the wooden sets really add to that. Mm-hmm. That was something that stayed with me as a young one. They actually somebody cleared out a grove of trees. They grabbed those trees, painted them black and glossy, and yeah. and built this extensive wooded set. And then just to cover some of the inaccuracies, they put the fog in. And what are the things you remember most? That creepy wooden you know woods that they're chasing around in. Just one of those things that fell right in place. And in uh-huh. HD, they still look great. Yeah, yeah. Now we're seeing, we're, impressive. we're not, we don't have the excuse of now you've got, it's on a film project, an old film projector with film that has the artifacts on them or things like that. This is film that has been remastered, cleaned up. We're seeing everything in a way that the original audience couldn't even see. Yeah. And it's, and it holds up and looks good. Uh, mm-hmm. I was, I will say, watching it all the way through, there wasn't a point in time where I'm like, oh, that's clearly like a made-up set or something like that. To your point, they used some trickery to achieve that, but it was good trickery. Yeah. <laughs> because they, I was not taken aback by any of it throughout all this. And I think that's something that's a testament to how they were using um, some really good strategy in this. And it, it was I very well done. I love the sets in this. I think you, you can go beyond just talking about this, the wooded sets uh, mm-hmm. for the for the more tense scenes. Even the the scenes in town uh, at the the antique store and in in Castle Talbot and all of that, all all the sets looked really really good in this. Castle it, Talbot it created yeah. an atmosphere. The castle's cool. I mean, like mm-hmm. it's it is like I want to run around that castle. I mean, it was cool. I mean, it's <laughs> I mean, and I say that just as somebody who I like that kind of architecture and things like that. Like it was a space that, you know, it's you're supposed to believe it's far more vast than what we we are able to see in it. And they got me there. Like I was very curious at any set piece that they were showing me in the castle. I want so- I wanted to be a part of that. Yeah, so the thing is, obviously, when you clean up film, when you go and do what we can now do with with technology, um, very often, and, and and this is something my dad and I've talked about, when we watch a movie that we've you know seen many many times, you kind of just like you know you you know what's happening, your mind fills in whatever, right? But then you see it cleaned up. Sometimes the movie takes on a new kind of feel to it. What what the the digital process has allowed to happen is it makes your blacks more saturated. It makes your your whites more stark. It allows the great. It allows that that I don't want to say 3D effect, but it gives it gives scenes that are not three dimensional normally because it's not shot that way. More of a depth to them, which actually allows you to sometimes to feel that it's even bigger and more expansive than it is. That woods is not a full set of woods. That woods is a like a little stage set kind of thing, right? But it looks so much bigger because we get that real shadow there's the, the way it was shot with the, the especially with the fog and stuff the fog is now not white it's still that misty gray but it allows you to feel well there's there appears to be something beyond what i can see and your mind fills that in and that's one of the hard things to do because we see it um a perfect example of that um and you guys might not remember this movie when well, we may do um in, in, invaders from mars the original invaders mm-hmm. from mars from the 50s that whole thing is just stock footage, just stock footage beyond belief. And the scenes where they film their little set they have, it was not built big enough. So everything is, feels very tight. So you're supposed to feel that they're walking up into the sand pit, just for those who remember the movie, right? And you're like, but everything looks small. Everything looks tiny. Everything looks cramped. At the same time, 
if you remember back to Wizard of Oz, in the scenes, what's happening in the background, you know, when, when they're in with the, um, in Munchkinland and stuff like that, the stuff in the background, they, they, that was physically further away. So when you watch it now cleaned up, you get the sense of depth. It looks even deeper. It's kind of funny because those sets are very close in what the way they're set, like the invasion of uh, Invaders from Mars and even uh, Wizard of Oz and, you know, anything like where there's a set piece. Sometimes when they clean it up, it like you can tell it's short. But sometimes if, if it's shot correctly and it's the film is done the right way and in black and white's even more than that, it shows you that way, you're able to get more depth. Um, I'm thinking, I don't know how many of you guys watch like film noir stuff or even like a perfect example, like the killers, either version of the killers, 46 or 64. Um, when you watch them, I mean, I've seen them when I was a kid. I love those movies, right? But you watch them cleaned up and you're like, wow, everything is so sharp. Everything is like like their, their suits, everything looks so much better. And you actually can like almost feel the texture of the suit. You you know that's wool. You know that's this. You know, like it. It's so your eye grabs it and fills it in. The same way that you shoot in black and white, you don't shoot things truly in black or white. You shoot in greens and blues and reds, and you know things that you know for your eye to read in a black and white movie. For your eye to read something as green, it needs to be painted red, because and that's true most of the time when something that you want to paint the green is green you paint it red and so your eye reads that it's not black it's in between and your eye says well it must be must be green right even though it's it's red so those kind of things are really sometimes when you clean them up can really stand out but here because they shot it so well and they did there was not too much fog but not too little where you could see the seams you know so um it is it is ultimately i as, as i tell my dad the curse of technology right I, I mean i'm watching this on like a you know 58 inch television in high def you know kind of thing whereas i've watched this movie plenty of times on a little black and white television when i was a kid you know what i'm saying it has the same the movie itself is the same movie but now i'm able to see things i should now the wolf man's almost the size of a human being on the screen you know what i'm saying let alone four inches tall on your little you know 12 not even a 12 inch little 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 six inch television you got your kid you know what i'm saying so well seeing the big screen helps too has anybody had a chance to see it like on a re-release no i was supposed to go see it at um uh what is the the, henry hall's grandson runs i forgot the name of it and i'm kicking myself i've spoken to this man like a dozen times in Somewhere in Connecticut, they have they show these movies, and he was doing one where he had um, uh, Ron Chaney, Lon Chaney's grandson, in to speak, um, and then he had like Sarah Karloff a couple times, or whatever, and he brings him in, and it's his whole big things, and he show it in a theater, old school kind of thing, and you dang you a Q and A afterwards, but uh, I was not able to attend. I was in the hospital at that time, but so. Yeah, but- if you have an Alamo draft house in your area, they tend to show it now during mm-hmm. October. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the thing is, is as, and as always, I always said too, uh, having, like I said, having have met some of the grandchildren of these people and stuff, um, when you go up to them and you're talking with them, and, and a lot of people, they, you know, they're proud of their heritage, right? They, you know, they talk about, you know, like, you know, Ron Cheney talks about his, you know, his grandfather and whatever kind of thing. 
Sarah talks about her dad, what she did himself. Um, you know, how beloved universal monster movies are, not just not just people who are like, you know, just you can go back. My dad was a monster kid. He's a kid of the fifties. But like my well, my grand my grandfather, my dad's dad had talked about, well, you gotta see King Kong, it's the greatest movie ever. And but he's like, and he goes, those because my dad's like, well, what about Dracula? He's like, well, it was Dracula and those things were good, but Frankenstein, right? Or mm-hmm. not Frank, but King Kong was it, right? And it's so funny how that, you know, it, it impacted. I mean, this is my my grand my my grandfather, which my daughter's who, my grandfather has since passed away, but my daughter's great great grandfather. They're watching the same movies. They have the same appreciation of them. The same. It's amazing how much that is, and how certain things are able to transcend generation after generation. I mean, this movie's what? It's forty one, right? I Miss mean, things. You're getting close to 80 years, 80 years old. It's, it's 41, right? Yeah, 41. Mm-hmm. So that's crazy. You know, you're almost a century later, still holds up, still does its thing. So, yeah. And that said, I think we've hit our point where we're ready to say, I think what anybody who's listened closely enough knows <laughs> what we're going to say. And I'm just going to start off. This is yours. It's, you know, I, I, we were texting back and forth, uh, I guess it was yesterday. And I was saying to, I was saying to the guys, I'm looking for a reason to make sure that I'm not overrating this. Should I, I'm looking for a reason why I should be saying this is yours too. And I, I quite frankly couldn't find anything. This is yours. So you guys go. I can't it's, wait to watch it again. It's Jaws. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, that's having seen it now. This is this is totally Jaws for me. So, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, you're it's Jaws. The only nitpick you might ever find in this movie is the fact that when he transforms to the Wolfman the first time, and I'm sure somebody's gonna bring it up on social media, he changes clothes and buttons all the way up, so he's a gentleman werewolf. It, it doesn't take me out of the movie. It doesn't diminish it for me. Well, he can't go out in a white beater, David. Come on. Right, I mean, yeah, that'd be rude. <laughs> No, and he had to wear because it's the 40s. <laughs> sorry, sorry, had to throw a Monster uh, Squad line in. <laughs> no, it's it's just for me too. It's uh, I absolutely adore this film. So that's it for the Wolfman, everybody. Oh. I hope you've enjoyed listening. I hope the guys have all enjoyed being on. Uh, if you come back and join us in two weeks, we're going to continue the conversation by looking at. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and we'll see Lon Chaney Jr. in this role again. So uh, come on, come on back. You hear? You've been a long while coming. I'm not buying anything. And I am not selling anything. I expected you sooner. Oh, I remember you. That night and in the crypt. Go inside. You killed the wolf. Well, there's no crime in that, is there? The wolf was Bela. You think I don't know the difference between a wolf and a man? Bela became a wolf and you killed him. A werewolf can be killed only with a silver bullet or a silver knife or a stick with a silver handle. You're insane. 
I tell you, I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf. Take this charm, the pentagram, the sign of the wolf. It can break the evil spell. Evil spell, pentagram, wolfbane. Oh, I'm sick of the whole thing. I'm going to get out of here. Whoever is bitten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. Oh, quit handing me that. You're just wasting your time. The wolf bit you, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Wear this charm over your heart always. All right, all right, I'll take it. What's it worth to you? I'll give you... Do you dare to show me the wound? What? Do you dare to show me the wound? Go now. And heaven help you.